Well, at this point in our journey through the Catechism, we have come to Lord's Day 46 in the topic of prayer and how we address our Father. So, Lord's Day 46, it's on page 560 or up there on the screen. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us, at the very beginning of our prayer, that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ, and will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Why is there added in heaven? Well, these words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner and to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. So today's sermon was also prepared by uh, Pastor Jeremy Segstro. So I guess it's kind of connected to last week's. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, how many, of you, how many of you have heard this conversation on either side of it? Why do we have to dress up for church? Well, if you are meeting the queen, you dress up for her, right? God is the king of the universe. Surely he deserves at least the same amount of respect as the queen of England. I think many of you have probably heard this argument before, right? But I'm not going to try to dismantle it this afternoon, as there are worthy elements on either side of this argument. We should absolutely be respectful and reverent before our God. After all, as we sang in Psalm 90, Before the mountains were brought forth and grounded, you, the earth, and world had formed and founded. From everlasting stood your holy throne. To everlasting you are God alone. So we must not and cannot appear casually before him. For what do we read in scripture about those who did appear before our God? Elijah, when encountering God, covered his face with his cloak. And the seraphim in the heavenly throne room, these beings of immense power and holiness themselves, they covered their faces with two of their six wings, for God is holy, holy, holy. And the tax collector, he would not even look up to God as he prayed. He beat his breast as he prayed. So when we come before our God in prayer, we often bow our heads. And we do this because we recognize that we ourselves are not worthy. Now, even though we have been welcomed into this family of God, by the amazing work of Christ, even though God is our Father, this is not a license to approach him casually in a laid-back manner as though you were just talking to your buddy down the road. In a lot of ways, approaching God is like approaching the Queen. But yet, there is one very important way that, that they are different. I'm not sure if you know this, but there are, there are very highly developed protocols for meeting royalty. You must bow or curtsy before the king and queen. 
you must speak only when spoken to. And if you do have opportunity to address royalty, you must begin your speaking with the word, Your Majesty. And above all, you do not touch them. And here is where our God is different. Although we must refer to him respectfully, there are various titles that he has given us to speak to him. God Almighty, Sovereign Lord, Heavenly Father. He's even given us his own personal name, Yahweh. You'd never consider going up to the queen and saying, Hey, Elizabeth! Well, God loves it when we approach him in prayer, when we begin and end our day speaking to him. And what's most different of all, and I'm going to say it in a bit of a strange way so that hopefully it will stick in your, in your memory longer than today, our God loves to be touched. Yeah, he loves to be touched. For the king and queen, if they're touched, the idea is that mere common people might seek to hurt the royalty or might corrupt or dirty them in some way. But our God, he has no such concerns. Indeed, he's exactly the opposite. He loves being touched because he is God. We have no power to corrupt him. With God, that, that power dynamic goes the opposite way. Just think of that woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. When she touched the robe of Jesus, he was not made unclean. Instead, she was healed. And the same for every leper that Jesus touched. The power went the other way. The power of healing was greater than the power of corruption. And that is how it is for us today too. For our God loves to be touched because that is how he heals us. We come to him like a child whose hands are all sticky with paste. And instead of retreating in disgust, he takes, his, he takes us in his arms and then cleans us off. Except in this example, our paste and dirt, it's not that, it's sin. And sin, when it comes in contact with the holy God, is completely obliterated. Our God loves to heal us. He loves to forgive us. Jesus Christ is a is ecstatic when you come to him with your sins because in forgiving you, in healing you, he is healing his own body, his beloved bride, the church. And so this afternoon, let's listen to a summary of God's word with this theme. Come before your God and recognize your privilege, recognizing his parentage, and recognizing his position. As we come before God, we must, first of all, recognize our privilege. Well, we hear that, row, that word thrown around a fair bit lately, but what does it actually mean? As we heard before, there is power in words. There's power in the words that we use, and there's also power in the meaning of words. So what does privilege really mean? Well, unfortunately, it's come to mean something that's tied completely with maybe the color of your skin or whether someone is maybe a man or a woman. Privilege has some, become something synonymous with 
inequality. The definition of the word has been changed. But initially, let's say for all of history up until about five seconds ago, privilege referred to the right or immunity granted as a peculiar benefit or advantage or favor. Privilege, it wasn't a bad thing. It was granted indiscriminately, or it wasn't granted indiscriminately to everyone, and it wasn't granted discriminately to just one particular race either. The privilege was granted to individuals from God above. And we as Christians are those who have been granted a great privilege, a unique privilege that no non-Christian has, but at the same time a privilege that is offered indiscriminately to everyone, no matter the color of your skin, whether you're man or woman or child, no matter what you have done in the past, you have access to this privilege. And the privilege is this. The catechism puts it in this way. God has become our Father through Jesus Christ. And though this is accurate and amazing in itself, the catechism puts it in a sort of factual, action-related way. For God has become But the same truth from an identity point of view is, well, we read it in Romans, and it it hits our ears, and it, it settles into our hearts in a different way. We read in Romans 8, 14, For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John puts it this way in the beginning of his gospel account. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, this is a great right indeed, a great privilege. And that isn't immediately obvious to us when we pray the Lord's Prayer. So let me make it obvious. If God is our Father, then by necessity we are his children. And if God is our Father, then we are his children. And what a privilege this is. Well, this week, as I spent time looking through Romans 8 and studying it, I found eight privileges to spiritual childhood in this chapter alone. Maybe you want to count them on your fingers, because these are the eight. We have the privilege of freedom, of comfort, of assurance, of family resemblance, of intimacy, of authority, of discipline, and of immortal hope. We don't have time to go through all of them this afternoon, but we will examine four of them together. For as God's children, we have been given the privilege of freedom. Paul tells us, you did not receive the spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Like everyone else in the world, we were born into slavery. A slavery that we're not immediately aware of. A slavery that doesn't include physical chains. Instead, it's a slavery of our soul 
to sin. But through Christ, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons. We're no longer slaves. For Christ is the chain breaker, and our chains have been broken. What a great privilege. And we also have the privilege of comfort. Again, Paul continues in Romans 8. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. For fear has to do with punishment. But perfect love casts out fear. And as children of God, we are desperately loved. We're perfectly loved. We no longer have to fear. We do not fear hell. For this world is the closest a child of God can ever come to hell. Yes, if you are a follower of Jesus, the difficulties of this life will be the closest thing you ever get to hell. That's a comforting thought. We do not fear God's wrath, for it was completely poured out on the cross. And as children of God, we have been freed from fear, and we can now come before God boldly. When we do fear, then we do need to be reminded that we need not fear because of who we are in Christ Jesus, children of our Father. And that leads us to our next privilege, that privilege of assurance. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Well, when we're strong, we're, we're in a good place spiritually. All doubt is banished. And we know for a fact that we will always be children of God. But we're not always strong, are we? We know that there will be a day when we will be weak. And when we are weak, we then doubt if we can even be considered children of God because our sins accuse us of not being worthy. But then the Spirit himself, he acts as our defense. He holds us by the hand. He dries our tears. He reminds us that, yes, we are still God's children. And yes, we are still dearly loved. And then, as dearly loved children, we also have the privilege of a family resemblance. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We have been welcomed into the family. And though we do not all have the same chin or cheekbones or the same waistline or hairline, thankfully, we begin to look alike. Not just with each other, but we are all remade in the image of Christ. We begin to look like him in his life. We share, we show care for widows and orphans. We live a pure and holy life. When we look, sorry, we look like him in his death as well, suffering for what is true and what is right. And we will look like him in his glory when we receive an incorruptible body and a perfect and sinless soul. Well, these privileges and all the rest, they come to us because of that little statement that we find in the Catechism. God has become our Father through Christ a short statement, but it is a statement full of joy and full of hope. God has become our Father. To be sure, He is Father to the whole world in terms of creation, 
But in terms of redemption, where his fatherhood shines out so clearly that it is a privilege that is only given to Christians. The gospel of Jesus, it really is actually an adoption story. We were all adopted, but not from an orphanage. We were all adopted from the grave because God saw us helpless and hopeless, dead in our sins. And then, in his mercy, he brought us to himself. He became our father through Christ. And through the death of Christ, we all were washed and sanctified. And we were justified. We were welcomed in, not just to the house of God, but into his home. And not as strangers and not as guests, but as his children. As sons and daughters of the Most High God. And this is who we are as Christians. That is our privilege. And we don't need to check our privilege because others don't have the same as we do. (laughs) Instead, we need to welcome others into that same privilege. For these privileges are available for every single person who believes. So let us recognize it. Let us rejoice in it. And then invite others to do the same. Well, we are children of God and he is our father, which is our second point. Now you might wonder what else there is to say about the fatherhood of God that hasn't already been covered in the first point. We are his children and he is our father and that is fair, but every coin has two sides to it and that's true here as well. For we are God's children and he is our father. It's more than what we get out of God. It is his person. It is his character. It isn't so much who we are, but it's a lot more of who he is. A father is a title that our God has given to himself. It's a title given to him all throughout scripture. And we seem to have this idea that referring to God as father was an unheard of thing in the Old Testament. That Jesus brought something brand new to the table. But that's not exactly true either. Because although the New Testament refers to God as Father a lot more often than the Old Testament, and also with more intimacy, God does call himself Father in the Old Testament too. A handful of times. In Jeremiah and Malachi, God refers to himself as Father. And in Isaiah and in Deuteronomy, Israel is seen to acknowledge that God is also their father. And so the idea of God as father, it's not brand new to the New Testament. And yet, the fatherhood of God is brought starkly into clarity in the New Testament. For compared to the handful of times in the Old Testament, the New Testament boasts over 200 references to God as father. And maybe not surprisingly, most of those are in the writings of the Apostle John. But other than the occurrences increasing, what else is different for us? How has the richness of God's fatherhood increased for us in the new covenant? Well, exactly in that, the fatherhood. Because there's far more to fatherhood than just fathering. Fathering a child is not a statistical rarity. 
Hundreds of thousands of babies are conceived each day. But being a child's biological father does not necessarily mean fatherhood is given. There are absent fathers. There are cruel fathers. There are abusive fathers. And then even fathers who die before they ever see their children. And in the Old Testament, God's role was, it was mostly seen as that of fathering. Jeremiah 31 says that God is a father to Israel, that Ephraim was his firstborn. And in Isaiah 64, God says, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not suggesting that God was less loving in the Old Testament. That's not true at all. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that God was an absentee father in the Old Testament and that he had to sort of grow into his own in the new, for that would be heretical. But rather, I want to bring out that the nation of Israel had an understanding of God that was more focused on his sovereignty than on his affection. God was more powerful in their minds far greater than the gods of the other nations. He was holy, and he was distant, removed from them by the sacrificial system, removed from them by the priestly order. But God's love for his people has always been overwhelming. God's love for his people has always been the center of who he is, but it wasn't always recognized in this way. But through Christ... God has revealed himself to us more obviously as our father, not just our progenitor, not as the source of our existence. He revealed the lengths that he would go to bring us to him. God the Son revealed to us God the Father, and he brought us back to him. He sent us his Son. He sent us his Spirit. He has called us children, showing us far more love and grace and sympathy and mercy than we will ever be shown by anybody else. In the New Testament, God showed us the template for fatherhood. He showed us that perfect blend of strength and gentleness that should be found in every father. He showed us the perfect blend of patience and encouragement and as One writer put it, God is the kind of father you wish you had. God's the kind of father who always has time for you. He's never too busy. God's the kind of father who never gets angry at you. He's always patient. God's the kind of father who will always welcome you onto his lap. He's never cold or distant. God is the kind of father that you wish you had, and through Jesus Christ, you do have him. He is yours. He is your father. And so, you are welcomed into his throne room, or maybe more fittingly, his family room, and onto his lap, despite your sticky hands, despite your smell, despite your rumpled state of clothing. This is our father, for he is infinitely approachable. He is infinitely loving. He is infinitely gracious. And yet he is infinitely holy too. 
He is infinitely glorious. And so, in our prayers and in our lives, we must recognize this position as well, which is our final point. For with God's grace comes his glory. With his hospitality comes his holiness. And we can't separate the two. For our God is not the Queen of England, shrinking back from the touch of a mere commoner. But he is still royalty. He is royalty in a far bigger way than the queen could ever be. For her power and privilege come as a result of nearly 1,200 years of tradition, of pomp and circumstance. But our God's power and privilege have always been his. There has never been a time when they did not exist. For our God was king even before there was a universe to govern. And our God, he was not born into this position. He doesn't have this power because of a particular bloodline. He has all of this. He is all of this because of his character, because of who he is. For he is the I am who I am, or the I will be who I will be. And though we may come freely into his throne room, and though we do not need to tremble in fear, wondering if he might reject us, we also must come reverently. We must never casually stroll in, and we must never begin our prayers with, Hey God, I just want to... Maybe like some modern evangelicals do. This wouldn't really be proper or appropriate for Christians who truly know their Father in heaven. So why is there added in heaven? Well, these words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way. God is our Father, and there's no question about that. And he loves us for sure, and we never need to doubt that. But God is in heaven, and we do need to remember this. We must approach our God with the reverence and respect and worship that is due to his name. It's as we sang before the sermon. You turn us back to dust when life is ended. For so you these very words have commanded. Return to dust, O mortals, and thus we perish. By the command of God's voice, our lives are ended. But also by the sound of God's voice, the world came into being. God literally breathed out all the constellations and galaxies. Maybe we need to learn a lesson from Job. Because when he tried to call God to account for the things that had happened in his life, when he tried to raise himself to God's equal and convince God that he was wrong, God came down in might and in splendor. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man and I will question you and you make it known to me. Yes, Job, you are not God. There is only one God, and he is not you. And so, verse after verse after verse, God displayed his power and glory. Verse after verse after verse. In fact, for 126 verses, God lays into Job with question after question. Were you there? Do you understand? Are you the one who controls the earth? Who do you think you are, Job? 
And of course, Job had no answers. In the end, he said, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. But then our God is also gracious and merciful and full of love to Job. For he shows himself to be not only heavenly, but also a father. And Job, he needed both, as do we. Job is reminded that even though he is a human being so far below God, that he is a human being with whom God is pleased. He is a human being who can approach God, not in his own strength, but through sacrifice and humility. Well, after Job repented and humbled himself, he was instructed to pray for his friends and to even make sacrifice for them. Job could enter the throne room of God now that he had been humbled. And then as a father loves to bless his children, to give them good gifts, as our catechism says, we should expect from his almighty power, all things we need for body and soul? Well, this is the lesson of Job. Because we see God stretch out his mighty hand in blessing. Job receives twice the riches that he had before. And so in the book of Job, God teaches us about his glory and about his love. So our God, he is in heaven. And beloved, we are here on earth. And we must recognize this in humility and in thankfulness. We must humble ourselves before God's heavenly power. But we also must be endlessly thankful for his heavenly love. For our God's glorious and holy position means that all of his attributes, which might be so weak among us when we try to imitate them, they are perfected in him. Yes, earthly fathers love, and unfortunately, sometimes their love grows cold. But not our God. Earthly fathers discipline, and sometimes they go too far, while others, maybe not far enough. But not our God. Earthly fathers can show only justice or mercy, but not our God. For our God is our Heavenly Father, and He is in a completely different category. And this is what must be the foundation of all of our prayers. We must recognize who God is, a God who is both loving and powerful, a God who is both our Father, accessible, loving, and caring, but also heavenly, glorious, almighty, and all-powerful. And we must truly recognize who we are as well. Human beings who are both sinful but who are also saints. And as human beings who were desperately lost and now are desperately loved. For he is our father and we are his children. Amen.